Hey everybody, and welcome to the 10th SFD Short. Man, are we putting out more content this year than last year. Our first Patreon exclusive news show is coming out this week, and given that I just finished editing it, I can tell you that it actually turned out pretty good. So be sure to check out patreon.com slash saferdemocracy for details. And if the small body of folks who are actually privy to it sign off, I'll end up releasing that to everybody so that you can evaluate whether it's worth paying for or not. Other than that, just share the shows, man. You know the deal. For now, this is about means and ends, intellectual coherence, and the modern Republican Party. I'm John Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to yes, our progress has been uneven. The work of democracy has always been hard. It's always been contentious. Sometimes it's been bloody. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Like I said over the last two weeks' shows, I'm using these short Monday pieces in part to work through ideas that will become central to the eventual series on Vietnam. It needs so much mental working out on my part in the first place because unlike Guatemala and Iran, both I and you, the public at large, actually know something about it. Iran and Guatemala were more straightforward. Since I was a tabula rasa, all I had to do was read reliable books by reliable people and I'd come out okay. With Vietnam, I've got prior knowledge and all kinds of preconceived notions. And what's more, not even the background, but directly relevant information on the topic goes back to the late 19th century when the French were colonizing Indochina. Much more so than Guatemala or Iran, although maybe it wasn't all that much more applicable, Vietnam has also changed the way we think about foreign policy, and that war continues to shape our discourse. It's no small thing that we referred to Iraq as another Vietnam. And like the last two weeks shows, today's grows out of all the books and things I've been lucky enough to have the time and inclination to read in my life, along with the preliminary reading I'm doing for Vietnam, 
like Fehrenbach's book from last week, Michael Hare's Dispatches, Francis Fitzgerald's The Fire in the Lake, Bernard Hall's books on the French War and Dien Bien Phu, and John Lewis Gaddis's Strategies of Containment, a critical appraisal of American national security policy during the Cold War, whose title is pretty self-explanatory. So I'm going to knit a few ideas together here, and the first of them is the relationship between ends, or goals, and means, or methods. Some or all of you have probably heard of the strategy of containment, as practiced by the U.S. in opposition to the USSR over the whole course of the Cold War. Many of you probably also know that containment was laid out by the most perceptive person to have ever worked in the State Department, George Kennan. Kennan described the policy for the first time in what's become known as the Long Telegram, which he sent in the late 1940s from where he was working at our embassy in Moscow. All of the different tactics that he outlined in that 8,500-word telegram and later, when he was back in Washington, aren't important here. Although I will at some point talk about Kennan at great length during the Vietnam series. What is germane today is that everything we think of as making up containment, from asymmetrical response to linkage to symmetrical response, great names, I know, from the defense of Korea to the coups in Iran and Guatemala to the war in Vietnam, None of them were part of the original goals of the policy, or really, made much progress towards those goals. Kennan's original and explicit objective, or end, in terms of containment was to change the imperialist behavior of the USSR through a series of carrots and sticks in order to fit it into the international community. Means are what you use to achieve ends, and losing sight of your original goal as you focus on implementing your tactics is a perennial pitfall of human behavior. Have some examples. You're playing baseball, or softball if that's your bag. You're at bat, your buddy's on third, it's the bottom of the ninth, you're down one run, and there is one out. You're a slugger with a high batting average, and what's more, you've been on a hitting streak. But your coach is giving you the sign to bunt. He wants to play small ball, to have you let the guy on third score and get yourself, probably, thrown out. It'll tie the game, and it will give your team a shot to win it with that last out that you have left. But just tying it up, or just going to extra innings, is pretty far from spectacular, especially for you. So why not get yourself on base and bat your buddy in, and set the team up to win it in this inning, right? So you swing away, line it to third, and a double play ends the game. You got wrapped up in the means. How are you going to look getting thrown out at first while your buddy tied it up? But your coach had his eye on the big picture, the end, which is winning, regardless of how his players look or how many innings it takes. Try another one. A thing that engineers like my father and sister are big on is called reverse design. If you're going to start a project or fix one that's gone wrong, you start with the end in mind. Instead of dealing with each new task or problem as it comes up, you decide where you want to be, and you make sure that every step you take with each new task or problem moves you in the direction of your goal. My pop worked for General Motors for a long time, and for most of the last half of his career, he ran body shops, which is the place where they put the nuts and bolts of the car together. Because he was so good at it, GM time and again sent him to its worst body shops, from Flint and Pontiac in Michigan to Lordstown in Ohio so that he could fix up the messes that they were in. And almost always when he arrived, he found that the people working there were lost in the means, having totally lost sight of their end goals. Now any downtime on an assembly line means a serious financial loss for the plant, and serious hell to pay for the guys who let it stop. 
So the men and women in these plants were usually dealing with crisis after crisis in ongoing, desperate attempts to keep the body shops moving. And they'd been doing it for so long that they'd become laser-focused, almost by necessity, on the day-to-day. How do we keep the line running today? Say you've got a robot, and for some reason, in one part of its routine, it's off by a centimeter. Tearing it down for maintenance and running through all of its code would be time-consuming, and would, moreover, shut down the line. So maybe just jimmy the mechanism a little bit, so that in that part of the routine, it lines up. And if it goes a little more wrong in a month, jimmy it a little more. And it goes on like that. Some duct tape here, some chewing gum there, and we get through without a shutdown. But that kind of tactic will always eventually result in an even greater disaster down the road. Now, Dad, he'd come in and take the lay of the land for a couple of weeks, see how people were working and how the plant was getting on, and then he would shut the whole thing down. He'd catch hell from above and below, but he'd get his engineers and his foremen and his managers together and figure out where they wanted to be, a functioning plant with all of the routines and preventative maintenance that go along with it, and they would hammer out a plan. Repairs here, replacements there, new metrics, sometimes new people, and from that day forward, they would all be working as a giant team towards one singular goal. And in foreign policy, almost as soon as Kennan delivered the long telegram and it caught fire in Washington, folks from the Truman administration straight through to Reagan got wrapped up in their tactics, their means, and lost sight of the endgame, which, again, was turning the Soviet Union into a good international actor. Johnson and Kennedy, for example, became enamored of a strategy called symmetrical response, where we would use our superior economic might to fight communism on all fronts and in all countries, even where the folks we were opposing had the advantage. The idea was that we could make Soviet expansionism too costly for them to even contemplate, and thereby train them not to get involved in other countries. The Kennedy and Johnson administration's use of symmetrical response, combined with a loss of focus on the end goal rather than the how of opposing communist expansionism, is part of what got us embroiled in Vietnam. Both presidents announced symmetrical response publicly and forcefully and repeatedly. Both had emphasized that the strategy treated a defeat of free institutions anywhere as a defeat everywhere, and that the U.S. would treat a communist incursion in any part of the quote-unquote free world as a threat to its vital interests. And both presidents, as they began sending more and more resources to Vietnam, became preoccupied with the prestige they might lose by deviating from symmetrical response, even though they would have been doing so to achieve the end goal of containment, of which their particular strategy was only a means. Let me unpack that and make it a little bit less philosophical and a little bit more practical. Johnson and Kennedy doubled down and doubled down on propping up a rotten regime in a country and under circumstances that we would never understand. And we fought the war by responding to an enemy, the North Vietnamese, who at every moment controlled the initiative. Just a tiny aside here. We used, for most of the decade, most of the 60s, the concept of a body count to measure our progress in the war. If we could stack up enough North Vietnamese corpses, we could eventually deplete their manpower and force them to surrender. It was a tactic and a metric that fit well with those White Houses and McNamara's obsessions with numbers. But the problem with the body count was that the NVA and the Viet Cong only gave battle when they wanted to. When they didn't, they melted back into the woods and their mountain fastnesses. And if Charlie can stop fighting and thus stop losing men whenever he wants and not when we want, the side getting worn down is ours, not his. 
So while the original idea was that by propping up the South Vietnamese regime, we would make the Soviet attempt to spread communism there too costly for the Kremlin to continue, what we actually did was spend the balance of our military forces, 50,000 dead men, most of our international prestige, and billions and billions of dollars fighting against a homegrown communist, Ho Chi Minh, who wasn't even doing what he was doing at the behest of the USSR. That is, we got so wrapped up in our tactics, our means, symmetrical response, that we ended up achieving the exact opposite of the original goal. We made it tough for ourselves to oppose Soviet expansionism, rather than teaching the Soviets that it was too expensive to expand. So one relationship of means to ends is that once you focus on means and lose track of your end objective, the chances of you then reaching that goal diminish to pretty much nil. The other important relationship, the one from which we get the phrase, the ends justify the means, is that means corrupt ends. What that phrase is usually meant to defend is that you've got a good end that is so good that you're going to use bad means to get there. Getting into law school, for example, is so important, and you'll do so much good once you're a lawyer that you justify cheating on the LSAT. The reason that it's a poor excuse and a bad justification is that using bad means will inevitably corrupt and tarnish the good end that you've got in mind. This is something that we deal with a good bit on the show. It plays into that same forgetfulness of ends that characterized DC's response to the long telegram and containment, too. We were ostensibly endeavoring, over the whole Cold War, to create a world in which all peoples enjoyed the right to self-determination and sovereign government. Almost every White House from World War II to Reagan explicitly also stated that it would be a world in which we could even tolerate countries which elected communists, as long as those communists were independent of the Soviet Union. But in trying to contain the USSR, in implementing the means rather than working towards the ends of containment, we ended up using every one of the tactics and eventual ends that we described to the Soviet Union itself. Undermining regimes like Mossadegh's and Arbenz through underhanded tactics, funding paramilitaries in Guatemala and Nicaragua and Honduras, training death squads and secret police at the School of the Americas, above all, supporting authoritarian strongmen like the Shah and Trujillo and Pinochet. We used the tactics of the enemy, and the necessary result was that we became and we began to build the world that we had ostensibly been trying to eliminate, an international bad actor who arranged to set up puppet states within its sphere of influence, one which defended its international territory by oppressing the people within it. So that's idea two, that means corrupt ends. Idea three may be more controversial, and changing gears pretty sharply, is that the GOP, the Republican Party of today, has no coherent ideology. Now, you might have read a lot about this in the news already, but what I mean by that is that the GOP still sells itself as the staid, responsible party of Eisenhower, but there's almost nothing that Eisenhower would recognize in the modern Republican establishment. Ike, for example, thought that there was no greater threat to American democracy than the ongoing growth of the military-industrial complex. Even though most Republican members of government today still claim to be in favor of a hands-off state that doesn't meddle in private industry, you'll find no more ardent supporters of massive transfers of taxpayer dollars to places like Bechtel and Northrop Grumman, and, even more dangerously, to private armies like Blackwater, than modern Republicans. And I realize that Blackwater has another name now, but I think if we let them change the word that we call them by, we're giving them the power to obscure who they are and what they do. Anyway, continuing, the conservative American position on foreign wars has been for most of the life of this republic that we ought to avoid them at all costs. 
But the people in the Congress and the White House these days who most often call for boots on the ground or a preemptive strike against, for example, Iran, not to mention Iraq or Afghanistan, are, of course, Republicans. I mean, it keeps going. What ideological position is most rhetorically concerned with keeping the hands of the state out of your private life? Well, the conservative one. But in today's America, despite Republicans constantly talking along those lines, there is exactly one party trying to get the government involved in your sexuality and your personal life, and it's theirs. Take the current healthcare fight, too. Obamacare, as written, was taken directly from Republican healthcare plans put together in the 1990s, and it was consciously modeled on the plan that Mitt Romney had implemented in Massachusetts. But under Mitch McConnell and Speaker of the House Boehner, they got so rhetorically concerned with opposing anything the Democrats had done that now, with the opportunity to make law, they're trying to destroy the very plan they wrote two decades ago. In fact, the only two tenets of Republican ideology that have any staying power at all are one, oppose whatever liberals support, and two, cut taxes for the rich. Which, sure, solid, but not a coherent ideology, and definitely not one that bears any relation to the GOP of the past. So that's point three. The modern Republican Party has no apparent ideology to follow except to make the rich richer and to inspire liberal tears. Which, if you don't believe me there, and you're on you know the rightward side of my audience, Google the phrase liberal tears. Real Republicans in the government are using that phrase. Anyway, point four is a little more esoteric. And it's that I think, regardless of whether it gets you hired or published or loved or whatever, that it's important to have a well-thought-out intellectual position. I was reading the introduction to a collection of essays by Walter Benjamin that was written by the lady I keep bringing up, Hannah Arendt, and there was stuff in that introduction that really struck me. Now, Benjamin was a German-Jewish literary and cultural critic at work in the interwar period who, like his hero Kafka, both felt himself to be totally ignored by his own generation and who, again like Kafka, was recognized as a genius after his death. Benjamin described his intellectual situation as being, quote, like one who keeps afloat on a shipwreck by climbing to the top of a mast that is already crumbling. But from there he has a chance to give a signal leading to his rescue." Unquote. And he also said, all this coming from Hannah Arendt's introduction, quote, "...in Germany I feel quite isolated in my efforts and interests among those of my generation, while in France there are certain forces, the writer Giraudot, and especially Aragon, the Surrealist movement, in which I see at work what occupies me too." Unquote. But now continuing the quote from the introduction by Hannah Arendt, so he wrote when, having returned from a trip to Moscow and convinced that literary projects sailing under the communist flag were unfeasible, he was setting out to consolidate his quote-unquote Paris position. Well, he did not succeed in consolidating anything, and success would hardly have been possible. Only in post-war Paris have foreigners been able to occupy positions. On the other hand, Benjamin was forced into a position which actually did not exist anywhere, which, in fact, could not be identified and diagnosed as such until afterwards. It was the position on the quote-unquote top of the mast from which the tempestuous times could be surveyed better than from a safe harbor, even though the distressed signals of this shipwreck, of this one man who had not learned to swim either with or against the tide, were hardly noticed, either by those who had never exposed themselves to the seas or those who were capable of moving even in this element." Unquote. So that resonated with me, because I see myself as engaged, in probably a much less rigorous way, in the same kind of process, working out my own position, having abandoned more conventional ones in the past, like the way I was pretty much a down-the-line Democrat halfway through college. You all really should be able to see me doing it. 
I'm an open-minded guy and my understanding of the world changes, sometimes substantially, over the course of researching and writing the long shows. My framework, that model plane I'm building in my head, if you think back to the third SFD short, the what about historical forgetfulness, is adaptive. It is, even, less like a model plane and more like Legos. I learn something new and I pop that new piece right on, and after a while and enough pieces, my whole worldview starts to look different. And I'm proud of that. I'm evolving. I'm open to argument, and you can almost in real time see and hear me working out my position on things. From a kind of synthesis of liberal socialism and Catholicism to liberation theology, to picking up totally new knowledge, for me, like that about Shia Islam. I think, honestly, it might be important in itself to know where you stand on things. But there are also practical effects. When you know about stuff, history, politics, art, culture, the world around you, and you form your own thoughts about them, and then you work to knit those thoughts together, as I'm doing in this episode right now, into a cohesive whole, you end up creating, at the same time, an ethical system that you can put to use anywhere in life. Like me, for example. I spent a year working at a nonprofit that fought against corporate malfeasance. We spent most of that time working on Walmart, and I learned that it's pretty much bad news wherever it goes and for everyone involved. When it moves into an area, unemployment increases and property values decrease. Walmart uses SNAP and the Earned Income Tax Credit and Medicaid in order to pay its employees far less than a living wage, and it actually trains people how to sign up for those programs as part of its onboarding process. Walmart's influence with its supply chains leads to so much cost-cutting that places like J&B Seafood end up literally enslaving migrant workers. And it plays dirty abroad, like here in Mexico, where it bribed public officials to help its entrance into the market. So, knowing all that, I don't go to Walmart anymore. And in a certain sense, I can't. And maybe that's all small potatoes, but likewise, politically, when you learn more about Iran and the Middle East, it gets tough to back up the president when he makes noises about unilaterally pulling out of the nuclear deal, like he's doing right now. And it would have made it difficult for all those congressmen and senators who voted for the invasion of Iraq to have done what they did. And on the conservative side of things, say that you, my hypothetical right-leaning listener, have a rigorous intellectual system, and a rigorous ethical one that grows out of it. You respond to events on your own before you take in whatever Fox News or Breitbart or your pastor has to say about it which means that you have confidence in your system. Well, consider that tweet about trans folks serving in the military the other day. Rally your thoughts about trans people. Maybe they make you uncomfortable. Maybe you've even got some religious objection to them getting married or legally reassigned genders. And now ask yourself, what do any of those objections have to do with letting them serve in the military? Especially when the generals themselves have said that it would be no problem. This is what I mean about coherence. I think there are a lot of conservative people out there who, if you sat them down and Socratically worked through what they believe, you could bring around to opposing those Trump tweets about trans folks. But because mostly nobody, on either side, sits down to churn through what they believe and to straighten it out, you end up supporting ideologically incoherent positions. So that's point four, that it's important to develop an intellectual position, because then you end up having a coherent, ethical one. Which brings me to my last point, five which is also kind of the synthesis or conclusion of all the preceding ones, which is that when you've got a coherent ideology worked out, and you're able to keep your ends and means sorted and in perspective, then it's tough to get on board with the modern GOP. Part of it is that when you've got a rigorous ethical system, it's easier to match means to ends, and the opposite is also true. Take for example the concept of right work. It comes from Buddhism's Eightfold Path, and I like it a lot. 
It says that you cannot be a good Buddhist if you know that the job that you do hurts people. For example, if you were one of those guys who at ExxonMobil discovered that global warming was going to trash the earth in the late 80s, and in order to keep the company afloat and keep making money, you just suppress that information, well, under the concept of right work, you don't get to separate and compartmentalize your personal or religious and professional lives. They are part of a one whole. The Christ's, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me, is a more exacting kind of the same religious demand. Now with me, at the end of college, along with Peace Corps, I had a line on a job in Singapore, where you would help rich Chinese kids get into prestigious American universities. And the way you would do it was by lying about those Chinese kids. Not that Chinese kids can't legitimately get into American universities, but those kids aren't the ones paying a special agency in Singapore to do it for them. Now that job paid pretty well, and it would have set me up much better, I think, to have been a struggling writer than Peace Corps did. More money, more freedom about what to write. But it was a bad job. So even though it was a better way to get me to my end, writing, even when I was 22, it seemed like an unacceptable means to get there. Now the best big example in the US nowadays of mismatching ends and means also applies, predictably, in the course of this podcast, to the GOP. They say they want to fight illegal immigrant crime, and maybe they really do. But to reach that end, they're making war on sanctuary cities, because they have pre-existing prejudices, born from opposition to liberal policies rather than an ideology, about the concept of sanctuary cities. The problem being that those programs, in those cities, according to the police themselves, create the kind of trust between immigrant communities and law enforcement that actually allows the cops to catch criminals, like the members of MS-13 that Trump was talking about a week and a half ago. It's the same thing across the board. Since Nancy Reagan, the GOP has talked the talk about fighting drug addiction. But because they're so caught up in how evil it is to be a drug user, they can't implement policies that would actually alleviate problems that drugs bring about. Study after study have shown that greater availability of treatment, like methadone clinics, and legalization of even very hard drugs, like they've done in Portugal, are the best and maybe the only way to draw down on addiction. But the GOP has staunchly opposed all such measures. Likewise, in DC in the 1990s, there was a huge IV drug problem that was exacerbating an AIDS infection problem, and the city passed a needle exchange law to tackle it. Well, the Congress gets to review DC law, and Republicans shot the needle exchanges down. And as a result, the AIDS infection rate in DC rose to be the highest outside of sub-Saharan Africa, which was obviously, or well, maybe not that obviously, nobody's end. Now, I don't think this mismatching of ends and means by way of incoherent ideology and ethics is anywhere more obvious than on abortion. The GOP and its base are die-hard abortion opponents. But despite that all the available evidence shows that the best ways to lower the numbers of abortions happening is to expand sex education, especially for women, to extend family planning services, like those which Planned Parenthood provides to poor women, to make birth control widely and cheaply available, to provide maternity leave, and to support adoption programs, the GOP has opposed literally all of those things. The predictable result has been that the most conservative and religious states have the highest levels of teen pregnancy and abortion. Because the Republican ideology is confused and incoherent, they cannot subordinate means to ends. They can't support the programs that would actually reduce abortions and instead implement ones, like abstinence-only education, which actually encourage them. The only ends that the GOP still has left in mind, 
a result of their failure to hold either onto the past, i.e. in the time of Eisenhower, or to develop a new coherent ideology, have left them in their current bind, where they're defending Russian interference in an election and trying to destroy American health insurance so that they can enrich their donors. It's not an enviable moral position to be in. And the combined absence of clear ends or rigorous ethical framework have left their means even more corrupt. That's how we end up not only with a bad healthcare bill in the Senate, but with Mitch McConnell actively flouting all of the norms that have kept that body on track for the last two and a half centuries. And you can get that whole story in another old short, Death of the Republic. It's also why you have a party that claims to be against everything that Donald Trump is about, out there every day defending the president anyway, up to and including the nepotism and corruption he's introduced into the White House, the mad tweeting morning and night, and most of all and most egregiously, his obstruction of justice and his open musing is about doing an, an amped up repeat of Nixon's Saturday Night Massacre, complete with pardons. Donald Trump is just not a conservative guy, and not even by the lax standards of today, a Republican guy. But because the party has no ideological core anymore, it finds itself serving at his beck and call. I couldn't give you the first idea of what kind of America the GOP is imagining as it goes about its day to day. Remember reverse design? Way back towards the beginning of this show? If my dad sat down with the GOP leadership, what in creation could be the world that they're working towards today? Even if the Republican Party's ostensible end is returning to 1950s America, they're not doing that right. Eroding the democratic institutions that keep the nation together and the state afloat isn't going to make any kind of progress towards Leave it to Beaver. I think the only way for the party to find its way out of this mess, and maybe in the process save American Republican democracy as we know it, is for its base to somehow begin to do the work of intellectual coherence, to develop its own internally consistent ideology, and to bring its representatives back into line. But I don't have a roadmap for that kind of recovery. And in all of the traditional ways you'd get there, conservatives have painted themselves into a corner by decades of propagandizing from Fox News, Breitbart, and the like towards their base. They've emphasized localization and conservative revisionism in education to the point where anybody coming in with a quote-unquote too liberal curriculum, like one, say, that includes Thomas Jefferson, who they've written out of textbooks in Texas, gets stonewalled and pilloried as a pinko or a cuck. It's not just that they've endeavored to excise liberal history and science from education. They've mounted a decades-long attack on intellectualism that has left no room for introspection or growth. If even William Buckley is too egg-headed these days, if the ideal of the base is a president whose ignorance and impulsiveness are his chief virtues, I don't see much chance, if any, for American conservatism coming to grips with itself. Without a way to evaluate right and wrong beyond political tribalism, the outcome of a disastrous Trump presidency won't and can't be a reckoning, but will be a doubling down on the same prejudices and tactics that brought him into office, and that road can't lead anywhere but disaster. Because while when Truman and Eisenhower and Kennedy, Johnson and Nixon and Ford, Carter and Reagan and Bush, Clinton and W and Obama lost track of their ends because they were fascinated by their means, we only ended up ruining democracies in Guatemala and Iran and Chile and Argentina and a dozen or two other countries. The modern GOP has turned those same confused tactics inward, and the result here will be, as it has been there, the very worst. I'm John Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, 
you and I and our government must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.